This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so again, I'm Jeannie Lee. I'm a professor of genetics uh, at Harvard Medical School, and I'm also a faculty member in the Department of Molecular Biology at Massachusetts General Hospital. So now, in lecture one, I gave an overview of X chromosome inactivation, and what we're going to do now in lecture two is a deeper dive into the initiation phase of inactivation, namely how cells count and then make the correct choice of active and inactive chromosomes. So here again are the different steps of X inactivation. And by way of review, there's a counting mechanism followed by a choice mechanism, and then the initiation of uh, silencing. So we're going to focus first on the counting step. So again, this takes place in the blastocysts shortly after the paternal X chromosome is reactivated. And every cell makes its own determination as to the X chromosome number. So it's taking place around the time that the epiblast has 20 cells or so. All right, and we discussed how it's really the X to autosome ratio that cells are sensing rather than the absolute number of X chromosomes. And we also mentioned that cells uh, follow the N minus 1 rule per diploid content, so that males who have an X to autosome ratio of a half will not inactivate any chromosomes, regardless of whether it's diploid or tetraploid with twice the genomic content, whereas the female with an X to autosome ratio of 1, will inactivate one of her two X chromosomes. And if she's tetraploid, she'll inactivate two out of those four X chromosomes. And furthermore, if the diploid had three X chromosomes, it will inactivate two out of the three. And if she has four X chromosomes, she'll inactivate three out of four. And so the point is that cells follow this N minus 1 rule in a diploid content, and every cell makes the determination for itself. And we also mentioned that counting is most likely a titration of X-linked and autosomal factors. We mentioned that the numerators are produced from the X chromosome in the form of this green blob. And uh, the autosomes also produce uh, their own factors. We call them denominators. And then the red and green factors will titrate each other out and form a blocking factor that then sits on one X chromosome at the inactivation center and prevents that inactivation center from initiating the cascade of inactivation. So we see that in the male cell. And we also see that in the female cell, where the same factors titrate each other out to form a hypothetical blocking factor, which then sits on the uh, 1X chromosome, preventing that inactivation center from firing, giving rise to this privileged active X chromosome. And we mentioned that one hypothesis is that the remaining X chromosomes would then undergo an inactivation by default. So that's certainly one viable uh, viewpoint. However, we favor the idea that there is a purposeful inactivation, not something that happens by default, because in fact, the female produces an extra copy of these green factors, since she has one extra X chromosome. And that green factor is not titrated by the blocking factor. So we propose that that factor goes and forms um, this uh, additional uh, uh, complex called a competence factor, which has to sit on the remaining X chromosome to purposely induce 
the initiation of inactivation. So that's the two-factors hypothesis. Okay. So then we get down to what are these molecular factors that make up the X, right? And what are the factors that make up the A of the X to autosome ratio? And here we'll start with the numerator, the X. All right. So in principle, without knowing all that much about what these factors are, we can say that the factor has to be produced from the X inactivation center, from those transgenesis experiments that I showed you before. And we believe that that factor has to escape X inactivation. So I haven't mentioned before, but a number of genes on this chromosome are actually immune to uh, the influence of exist. They escape silencing. And we believe that numerators have to escape X inactivation in order to serve as a dosage-sensitive readout of that chromosome. And furthermore, that factor has to be diffusible. So in order to titrate away autosomal factors, it has to be able to move around uh, in the nucleus. And then finally, it has to act at the X inactivation center, which is where the exist gene ultimately resides. And then most importantly, the math has to work. And what I mean by that is, if something were truly a numerator, then when we take away one copy of that X-linked numerator, a female cells should start to behave like male cells and block X inactivation, right? So she should think if she's a male cell, since she's missing the extra uh, X-linked factor. And conversely, if we were to give a male cell extra copies of the numerator, that male cell has to start to behave like a female cell and start undergoing X chromosome inactivation. Okay, so these are the rules. Now, a while back, we started to suspect this non-coding gene, JPX, which lies just on the other side of exist. It's an X-linked XIC product. We know that JPX levels increase about tenfold during the process of X inactivation, and it occurs in the same time frame that exist is getting upregulated on that chromosome. And we know that it escapes X inactivation. It's one of the few genes that will escape inactivation. And from the transgenesis experiments uh, I told you before, when we move this region and put it on an autosome, that autosome behaves like an X chromosome and undergoes inactivation. However, if we were to make a transgene that's missing this JPX, that transgene can no longer inactivate the autosome. Okay, so we put this to the test. So here, this is an RNA fluorescence in C2 experiment in which we're looking at expression of exist, which is shown here as a pink dot. And it's coding the X chromosome. So in wild-type cells, we see a very robust expression of exist RNA. Now, if we, in the female cell, deleted just one copy of JPX, so there are two copies normally, we just take away one copy of JPX, you see that these cells no longer produce that large, robust uh, cloud of RNA that coats the inactive X chromosome. However, if we then take a copy of JPX and insert it into another chromosome, an, uh, an autosome, we rescue this expression of exist in the same female cells. Okay. So these experiments tell us two very important things. First of all, JPX is a dosage-sensitive element. So by removing one copy 
of JPX in these female cells, the female cells start to behave like a male cell. And furthermore, JPX is diffusible, because we put the gene on an autosome. That autosomally produced JPX will rescue exist expression on the X chromosome. And then we did the converse experiment, where in male cells now, we insert extra copies of JPX. Male cells normally don't produce exist at all, so you don't see a big exist spot in green. But when we insert extra copies of JPX into these male cells, you start to see exist expression go up. Okay? So that suggests that JPX may, in fact, be a candidate for a numerator factor. And in this experiment here, we're demonstrating that JPX is acting as a diffusible RNA, one of these long non-coding RNAs. And it's not simply the genetic element, the DNA, which is responsible for this counting act. And we know that because when we introduce these things called shRNAs, is a technology that allows us to degrade the RNA when we introduce the shRNA into cells without actually touching the underlying gene. Okay, so when we introduce these RNA degradation factors, we see that exist can no longer be upregulated like in the wild-type female cell or the untouched uh, female cell. So this experiment tells us that JPX is a diffusible element acting as a non-coding uh, RNA. Okay, so the idea then is that JPX is one of these green factors that's being produced by the X chromosome, and that it is titrating away uh, the autosomal blocking factor, and then the untitrated uh, JPX factors would be the one that sits on the remaining inactive X to induce the firing of that inactivation center. Okay, so then we turn our attention to what are the pink factors? What are these uh, autosomal factors which are getting expressed to, to titrate JPX? Now, here we began to suspect a protein called CTCF. Now, CTCF is a very famous protein because it does a lot of different things. It has been shown to be a critical chromosome architectural factor. It was first identified by Viktor Lomonenkov as an 11 zinc finger uh, transcription factor that can take two distant genetic elements and bring them together to form a loop, as shown here, and can regulate uh, enhancer-promoter interactions. And more recently, CTCF has been shown to reside at the border of these chromosomal topological structures called TADs. And I'll say a lot more about that in lecture number three. Okay. But importantly, uh, we've known for quite some time that CTCF occupies discrete positions uh, at the X inactivation center and plays an important role in a number of different um, processes. So, for example, here, CTCF binds to the exist promoter at a number of positions that are shown here in red. And we know that at these sites, CTCF is serving as a repressor of the exist gene. And then as cells go through X inactivation, these binding sites here, shown again in red, pretty much stay the same. They remain bound, except for one at one location, the so-called P2 location. Now, at this position, CTCF binding actually goes down uh, during X inactivation. So that was really interesting. And we wanted to know, because there are two X chromosomes, from which X chromosome CTCF was getting removed. 
So for that, we had to perform an allele-specific analysis. That's an analysis that allows us to tell the difference between the future active and the future inactive chromosomes. And the long and the short of this is that it is from the future inactive, the chromosome which will become inactivated, that's where CTCF is losing its binding. Okay, so during axon activation, CTCF at P2 is retained only on the active X chromosome, and we know that its role is to block the expression of this critical silencing factor called uh, EXIST. So what I've told you then is that CTCF, it's an autosomal factor, represses EXIST expression. And at the same time, I've told you that this non-coding RNA, that's X-linked, induces EXIST expression. And so with one being autosomal, the other one being X-linked, doing opposite things, we wondered whether these two factors could be functionally interacting with each other and be part of that titration mechanism that I referred to earlier, part of the X, inactive, uh, the X to autosome ratio. So indeed, we learned that CTCF is an RNA binding protein. It was not previously known to bind RNA. But in this context, it is a very good RNA binding protein. In fact, it prefers to bind RNA over DNA. So you can see from the same sort of gel shift analysis here, except that this time we're using JPX RNA, and you see that very robust shift indicating a high affinity binding between the RNA and CTCF protein. And so, in fact, we can biochemically measure the affinity of this complex uh, by uh, measuring the dissociation constant, and that KD is less than one nanomolar. So CTCF is a very good RNA binding protein, much better than uh, uh, binding to, its binding to DNA, uh, where the dissociation constant is uh, more than 20 nanomolar. Okay, so then we have this idea that uh, CTCF may be getting competed away from the promoter by this non-coding RNA JPX, and that may underlie this titration mechanism. And so to test that, we mix together purified components of uh, P2 DNA, CTCF bound to the P2 DNA, and increasing concentrations of this JPX RNA. And what we see here in this uh, gel shift analysis is that CTCF gets pulled away from the DNA by JPX uh, RNA. Okay. So we can do the same sort of competition experiment inside of cells. Now, what I've shown you so far occurred within a test tube, right? But we can do this sort of thing uh, inside a cell as well. So here, we're overexpressing CTCF, which is the repressor of EXIST, and you can see that uh, when we do that, the cells no longer upregulate this green cloud of EXIST. So, so here's wild type, you can see, but in the um, overexpression system, we no longer see uh, exist clouds. However, we can overcome this, these extra uh, quantities, if you will, of CTCF by giving the cells extra JPX RNA. And so that's what we've done here. And you see that these green spots come back. Okay. So that uh, supports this idea that CTCF and JPX RNA are functionally interacting with each other and titrating each other inside of cells. So what we propose then is a functional antagonism between CTCF 
and JPX RNA. So prior to X inactivation, CTCF sits very robustly at the five prime end of EXIST, where it blocks the expression of EXIST. And then at the onset of X inactivation, what we have empirically measured is that JPX RNA increases in expression by tenfold. And when it crosses a certain threshold, as it will do only in female cells, because we have twice the number of JPX copies as male cells, a JPX RNA binds to CTCF and titrates it away from one exist promoter, and that act enables exist RNA to be upregulated on that same chromosome. Okay, so that's how we're presently thinking about this functional antagonism and about uh, the X to autosome ratio. What I'd now like to uh, turn your attention to is the second step of X inactivation, which is allelic choice. And I mentioned in the first lecture that this is a, a conceptually very challenging problem because uh, here choice has to be random, it has to be instantaneous, mutually exclusive, and completely irreversible. Okay. So how do we make the right choice? And again, we believe that there is a communication between the two chromosomes, such that when one chromosome is chosen as the inactive one, the other one is instantaneously the active uh, chromosome. So this mutually exclusive choice, which is what we call it, requires two genetic loci at the X inactivation center. So one is exists antisense repressor called Cyx, here shown here in yellow, and the other, its enhancer, shown here in brown, called Excite. Okay, so the region that's responsible for choice is this 15 kilobase domain that encompasses Cyx and Excite. And uh, what we know, going back to experiments done many, many years ago, is that prior to X inactivation, when the two chromosomes are active, the Cyx uh, antisense RNA uh, is expressed at very high levels. And its expression prevents exist from turning up. Okay? But then, at the onset of X inactivation, what happens is that the antisense RNA disappears from one X chromosome. And when it disappears, exist RNA is upregulated from that chromosome, leading to a formation of the inactive X. While on the other X chromosome, the action of the excite enhancer right, allows Cyx to persist on that chromosome so that the exist gene continues to be repressed on that chromosome, and that chromosome stays active. So the action of Cyx is essential for this mutually, for this allelic choice, with its persistence on the active. Uh, <laughs> its persistence determining the active X chromosome, and its loss determining the inactive chromosome. Now, what we also demonstrated in these early studies is that we can genetically manipulate the choice decision by simply removing Cyx from one X chromosome. And when we do that, that chromosome is always the one that becomes inactivated. So we can influence and manipulate which X chromosome will become the inactive one. Okay, so then um, what I've told you is that normally cells can uh, choose either one or the other X chromosome for inactivation. But very strangely, when we delete both copies 
of Psi-X, not just one, but both copies of Psi-X, we see these additional cell types where both X chromosomes are inactivated or neither X chromosome is inactivated, right? So it appeared to us here that the cells are undergoing some kind of a chaotic choice. Or maybe there's no choosing at all. You see all combinations as a result of losing this antisense repressor. So there's a loss of mutually exclusive choice. And from that, we postulate that maybe there has been a loss of communication between the two X chromosomes such that now cells, you know, really the left brain doesn't know what the right brain is doing. Going back to the analogy I drew in the first lecture. So these experiments also tell us that the Psi-X repressor is very important for that communication between the two chromosomes. Now, around the same time, we in the Herd lab um, made an interesting observation, which is that prior to X inactivation, the X, two X chromosomes behave like they're not even aware of each other. But at the onset of X inactivation, one of the very first things that we see is that the chromosomes come together and they briefly touch just at the X inactivation center. And it's a very brief. Happens probably under 15 minutes, but let's say under 30 minutes. And then when they come apart again, one X chromosome is the active one. The other one is expressing exists, so it's becoming an active one. It's almost as though the cells have flipped on a bistable switch as a result of pairing. And you can see this pairing event here by DNA fluorescence in situ hybridization, where you see two dots of the XIC uh, coming close together in a certain time frame during uh, X inactivation. And so because of this observation, we propose that the XX pairing process may serve as a bridge by which the two chromosomes can communicate with each other uh, prior to the choice uh, decision. Okay, so uh, in support of that idea, here um, we've shown that the center responsible for pairing is the same region that's responsible for allelic choice. It's the same white bar that you showed, that uh, you saw a few slides earlier. So this is a 15 kilobase region. And uh, intriguingly, if we were to take this white line, or take this genetic region, and insert that into an autosome far away, that autosome is now induced to pair with the X chromosome. So this region, this very, very small region, is both necessary and sufficient to uh, direct pairing. All right, so here's some real-life experiments. When we delete both copies of Psi-X, the chromosomes no longer pair. And as I mentioned, uh, there's a loss of mutually exclusive choice. On the other hand, if we insert extra copies of the pairing region into an autosome, which is shown here in blue, that autosome does something very strange, which is that it attracts one of, the X chromosomes, uh, one of the X chromosomes to come and pair with it. And in doing so, it prevents the two X chromosomes from interacting with each other, and X inactivation is arrested. And so what these experiments tell us is that XX pairing is very important to somehow properly initiate uh, X chromosome choice. So we propose that pairing is a mechanism by which uh, the two X chromosomes can break their epigenetic symmetry. So prior to the onset of X inactivation, uh, Psi-X is expressed from both X chromosomes. 
And then the process of pairing results in the loss of antisense expression from one X chromosome, and it is from that chromosome that exists becomes upregulated. And on the opposite X chromosome, Psi X persists, that blocks the upregulation of exists, allowing this chromosome to remain active in the female cell. So we propose then that XX pairing is a mechanism of crosstalking which allows the two chromosomes to adopt mutually exclusive fates of active um, and inactive X chromosome. So we've also observed that CTCF, this very versatile uh, zinc finger transcription factor, is essential for X chromosome pairing by serving as an interchromosomal glue. So in these complicated experiments, what you can see is that CTCF binds to Cyx and excite RNA. And CTCF also binds to the DNA, that white line, that 15 kV region I demonstrated before, to specific regions of uh, the pairing and choice center. So this binding to the RNA is essential for CTCF to be recruited as an interchromosomal glue. So before uh, concluding this lecture, I would like to uh, demonstrate what we think is taking place during that process of allelic choice. So prior to the onset of X inactivation, this pluripotency factor, OCT4, binds to both Cyx and Excite and transactivates the expression of Cyx and Excite. So I didn't mention that in my lecture, but um, this is the case. And then the expression of Cyx and Excite recruits CTCF to this pairing region. At the onset of X inactivation, what we see is that the two chromosomes come together and pair exclusively through this 15 kilobase region. And we believe that this pairing event serves as a platform on which the two X chromosomes can communicate with, with each other and make the determination of who will be the active versus the inactive X chromosome. Now, exactly what they're saying to each other and how this is done is something that's under very active investigation. We do not presently know. However, we suspect that what happens is that when the two chromosomes come apart again, uh, these transcription factors, like CTCF and very likely many other factors, will repartition onto one X chromosome. And since CTCF is serving as a transcriptional repressor, uh, it's binding to this chromosome will downregulate expression of Cyx as well as Excite, and their downregulation is what allows Exist to be upregulated from that chromosome. And that chromosome becomes the inactive X. But on the other hand, on the future active chromosome, uh, Cyx and Excite persist, and its persistence prevents Exist from becoming upregulated, and that chromosome remains an active chromosome. All right, so before concluding uh, lecture two, then, I just want to mention one last thing, which is that the ends of the sex chromosomes, the telomeres, play a very important role during XX pairing. Now, XX pairing is not taking place in a random place in the nucleus. Instead, they're taking place within what we call a tetrad. Okay, so what we've now shown is that the ends of both sex chromosomes, the X and Y, produce a non-coding RNA called parterra. 
And Parterra agglomerates. This RNA brings the two telomeres together, both X chromosomes and even the X and Y chromosomes. They bring the two sex chromosomes together at the nuclear envelope. And then that RNA serves as a tether and reels in the X inactivation center so that pairing takes place within this tetrad of two telomeres and two inactivation centers. And you can see real-life examples here by uh, DNA fish, where a pair of uh, the telomere, shown in red, and a pair of inactivation centers, shown in green, have agglomerated at the nuclear envelope to enable XX pairing. So why would they even bother to do this? Well, because the nucleus is a vast space. And it would take time for the two inactivation centers, a lot of time, for the two inactivation centers to come together. And so this tethering mechanism uh, facilitates this homology searching process through this process that we called a constrained diffusion in three-dimensional space. So that then concludes the second lecture. And we will talk about the initiation and spreading of X inactivation in Lecture 3. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.